It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by the author of a new book, Profit and Punishment, to talk about um, a topic that doesn't come up nearly as much as it should as we talk about um, law enforcement and the carceral system. Tony Messenger, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You know, one of the reasons that I don't think it gets enough attention is that uh, many of us never see this part of uh, the criminal justice system. And, and, and that's why I wrote my book on it that comes out tomorrow, Profit and Punishment. So tell, tell us tell us about the the definition, sort of like set it up for us, for folks who, who like you said, they don't have insight into this part of the system. And I don't think we Like you say debtor's prison, I'm system. picturing Dickens. Right. So, <laughs> well, and so I, and I talk, what is the modern I talk example? about Dickens in the book because it's it, it really <laughs> is a, a, a modern day reality. What happens to a lot of poor people that that separates how the criminal justice system treats them as compares to compared to how it treats other people is that in in every jurisdiction in this country, there are various fines and fees that get added to uh, driver's license tickets or shoplifting tickets or, or misdemeanor assault or whatever minor crimes people get arrested for. And when you add bail on to that, when you add the fact that the public defender system is underfunded, what happens to a lot of poor people is they spend time in jail for things that you wouldn't think people spend time in jail for. One of one of the main characters in my book is a woman named Brooke Bergen, uh, who ended up doing a year in jail for uh, stealing an eight dollar tuba mascara from Walmart. And mm -hmm. and that sounds just so absurd. It does. But, but the reason that I wrote about her wasn't just that she did a year in jail, but when she came out of jail and did her time, Dent County in the middle of Missouri gave her a bill for $15,000 called a board bill. What happens in a lot of uh, uh, small counties all across this country is that they charge you for your time in jail, just like you're in a hotel. And so you get out of jail and you get this bill for $15,000, which you're poor, you've lost your job, you, you know, you've lost access to your, your children, your car, your house, all of those things. And the judge says, if you don't pay this, I'm sending you back to jail again. And that's why I refer to this practice very literally as debtor's prison, because Brooke Bergen went back to jail, not because she committed another crime, but simply because she was poor. So I think the idea that you have to pay for your jail time is probably new to people. Mm -hmm. Is this, does this exist nationwide? Does it exist in every context? Does everybody who spends time in jail receive a bill for their rent, I guess, while they were there? It exists nationwide. Every state has a law, uh, except for New Hampshire, which, which is the only one that's repealed its law, at least at the statewide level. But, but every other state has a, a statute that, that allows you, allows the city or the county jail, uh, and that's what I'm talking about, is city and county jails primarily, not state prisons, to charge for jail time. Some charge, some don't. 
what, what one of the things I argue for in the book, frankly, I, I, I think it's a ridiculous charge. I think it should go away. But if you're going to charge for jail time, at the very least, judges should have ability to pay hearings as required in the Constitution um, so that if people can't afford to pay their bill, you're not threatening them with more jail time uh, simply because they're poor and creating a, you know, a, a dichotomous criminal justice system, one for poor people and one for people of means. Is there a yep. policy reason why this policy was put into place in the first place? Is it the reason? I mean, I'm just thinking of like, I assume everybody who creates laws is not inherently evil. Is it? Is this one of those cases where the, the unintended circumstances people didn't realize um, that this would mean poor people would just basically be put back into prison for being poor? Or is this a situation where the people that created these kinds of policies absolutely sort of knew what this what this meant and they just don't care about the consequences? Is it more like in my book, I sort of compare it to some degree to the the old story about about boiling a frog that um, that it's just, you know, a little bit and a little bit and a little bit year after year. State Ah. legislatures add a fine for this and a fee for Mm -hmm. that. And and one of the reasons that they do that is because a lot of state legislatures, uh, particularly those that are uh, majority Republican, don't believe in raising taxes under any circumstances. And so what they do is they look for different ways to raise revenue when uh, the state's money is drying up. A lot of this increased in terms of the reliance on court fines and fees after the 2008 Great Recession, when a lot of state budgets were drying up. And so when you have lawmakers who promise their, their constituents, I'm never going to raise your taxes, then they have to still find money to, to fund the budget. So they go to courts and fees, fines and fees. And so, for instance, one of the examples I write about in the book is the, the local sheriffs in Missouri wanted uh, increased retirement funds. And they went to the legislature and legislature's not going to say no to the sheriffs, but they weren't going to use general revenue because they were going to have to raise taxes. So they passed a three dollar fee to go on to every court case in Missouri. And that $3 fee is added on to another $5 fee for, for some other purpose and another $10 fee for some other purpose. And before you know it, you come out of a court case that, that you know, a minor traffic ticket that used to cost 25 or 35 or 55 bucks and you owe 300 or $400. And now there's that when I talk about the criminalization of poverty, that's what I'm talking about, because all over this country, there are people who have had their driver's licenses suspended, not because they got a second speeding ticket, but because they couldn't afford to pay the fines for the first ticket that they got because they were so absurd. And then that leads to real criminal complications for people because they lose their driver's license. Now they can't get to work to make the money to pay for the fines and fees that the system expects to extract from them. And they end up in jail because they drove without a driver's license. So this and and the people that we're talking about, if we're talking about the, the state and county facilities as opposed to federal prison, you're probably talking about smaller crime, right? You're probably talking about a lot of theft and a lot of crime that is is because of poverty, um, crime of crime of necessity. I mean, you can't say mascara is a necessity, but you know what I mean. Like when Correct. you're pro- you're probably talking about that that kind of crime as opposed to violent crime. 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So almost all of the people that I write about in my book are people who committed misdemeanors. And right. some of them, unfortunately, have drug addiction problems. And this is one of the other places where we where we really criminalize poverty, because take Brooke Bergen, for instance, she was arrested for shoplifting. But the judge, when when she put her on probation to begin with, had her supervised by a private for profit probation company that said, you know what, we're going to drug test you. Well, she's an addict. And so what happens is she ends up failing a drug test and going to jail because she failed the drug test given to her by a private company that is that has a profit motive that charges for that that drug test. And all over the country, this happens regularly. There was a, a, a big lawsuit, a federal civil rights lawsuit in Tennessee that I write about in the book, uh, in which, at least for a period of time, some of this process with one particular uh, egregious for-profit uh, probation company at least ended some of its its worst practices. But this kind of thing happens in every state in the country. And it's, again, we're we're criminalizing activities that, you know, people who have a drug addiction need help. They don't need more jail time. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that this makes me think about is not just the impact on the people you're talking about, but the ways in which the system is set up to harshly punish those folks and like all the other people that are doing way worse things, getting away with like getting away with it and, and hardly facing any consequences um, like the rich, connected and powerful people that face criminal charges. They don't they don't get caught up in this way. They always somehow seem to get away with it or get out of it or um, have to do the least in what way you know is it just the the core of the system being broken and in well, what there way the, could people could you know individual people make different choices to start to fix some of this well you know one of the things that i talk about in the book is how it it, it starts with bail when you talk about wealthy people having a a a different standard than uh poor people, when you compare offenses in jurisdictions, there are people that have money that never spend a single night in jail when they're charged with even some serious offenses because they can afford bail. And and, and bail is not supposed to be about whether or not you can afford it. It's supposed to be neutral as it relates to whether or not you can afford it. It's supposed to just make sure you show up for your next court date. And so that's one of the reasons why your listeners are hearing about bail reform in places like Illinois and New York and New Jersey and uh, California and some individual jurisdictions in Texas and Missouri and some other places. Because until we fix the, the improper use of cash bail, We hold people in jail for small offenses simply because they're poor. And then that creates all sorts of of other repercussions. The, The Arnold Foundation, a nonprofit out of Texas, did a study in which it actually determined that holding people in jail on minor offenses for even as much as a day or two days actually increases the opportunity that there might be recidivism. It makes Mm -hmm. us less safe because of what it does to their lives as compared to 
uh, what happens to wealthy people where, you know, if I get arrested for something, uh, my lawyer is going to make sure that one, I either don't have bail or two, if I do, I'm able to get the financial resources to write a check for it. And I don't miss a day of work and I don't lose my kids and I don't lose my job. Uh, and that starts at the very beginning of the system, even on minor offenses. It feels like this is more more baked into our government than I realized. Like the fact that we are relying on these fees, the fact that we are re- we're, we're relying on money from the people that get picked up for minor theft offenses like we're relying on them to fund key parts of local government absolutely and not only that it's a really inefficient sort of tax uh well, yeah there was a, there was a study in New the Mexico. poorest people <laughs> yeah we're we're, we're, we're trying right. to get money out of the out of the wrong people first of all right. but secondly there was a there was a study out of new mexico that showed that uh and i'm going to get the numbers a little bit wrong because i'm going off of memory here but but that it costs about seven dollars to collect about $4. And so we're actually spending more money trying to get blood out of a turnip uh, than, than we are uh, raising money for these other government services. And, and, and thus we're costing taxpayers money. That's one of the reasons why this particular form of criminal justice reform, ending the wealth extraction, ending the use of fines and fees to fund government services is really bipartisan. Uh, There's a chapter in my book called The ACLU Meets the Koch Brothers, in which I talked about both folks on the left and the right have come to realize this is just really bad government policy. Mm -hmm. We're, we're, We're trampling on people's civil rights and we're costing taxpayers a whole lot of money for putting the wrong people in jail and keeping them there for a long time, primarily because they're poor, not because they're committing further criminal activity. So if we're that in, tra- okay, so, so how do we get the, the, the Republicans, like the people like the Koch brothers, how did we get them to a place where they are saying this is an inefficient way to fund these mechanisms? Do they complete that sentence and then say, so the right thing to do would be to raise taxes on the people who can afford to pay them? Or well, do you're, they not just- gonna, you're not going to get the Koch brothers to raise taxes, but, right. but I think- So what do they, they want instead? I, I, I think the Koch brothers and the ACLU, and I'll use those as just sort of terminology Please, for yeah. the left and the right, uh, understand that, that the solution is we put fewer people in jail. Um, All right, that works and, too. And, and, and so that starts. So, so we don't take somebody who, who uh, committed a minor assault who isn't a threat to, to anybody else. We don't take traffic ticket people. We don't take um, um, the single you know, somebody mom who, who stole, stole the mascara. Right. Yeah, we, we don't put those people in jail. And further, we don't use our government uh, to, to take backdoor taxes out of people. I think that's one of the reasons why people on the right are so interested in this issue because they see a taxation without representation. So how do we fix it? We start by not putting as many people in jail. Then we have judges pay better attention to protecting the civil rights of, of, of people. I talk a lot about how there are a lot of judges in small uh, towns and, and, and counties who unfortunately aren't doing their job by allowing prosecutors to uh, put some of these folks back in jail rather than, you know, slow down, have an ability to pay hearings, see if they can afford that. If they can't wipe out the fines and fees, judges by, by just following the constitution 
can fix this problem almost immediately. But beyond that, when you talk about, and you're so right, it's an institutional problem, state legislatures now have to go back and say, wait a minute. Uh, And Missouri did this to, to a small degree in 2019 after I started writing about this problem. They passed a law that says you can't threaten somebody with jail time just because they can't afford to pay their bill for jail. So that's a that's a step in the right direction. But the next step, the harder step is to say we're going to stop using the courts as a backdoor tax. We're going to erase all of these fines and fees, because once you start doing that, you've got little constituencies bit by bit that you've got to deal with who want their money from somewhere. Uh, And 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 that's where the difficulty uh, in terms of really fixing the problem, really fixing public policy, I think, you know, it's a long slog. It's going to take a period of time. It's frustrating because I, I'm as you're talking, and, and I know just um, because you mentioned earlier, just in terms of level of addiction in this country, that, you know, a lot of the folks that are ending up in prison with these fees are people who need treatment. And I'm like, so as you're talking, I'm thinking of like the entire Sackler family at home laying on their money. Um, And I just am getting so angry um, thinking about that because I just feel like this is we're to Jess's point. We're asking for the money from the wrong sources of people. We're asking for the money from people who don't have the money, Who who cannot give it, but also from people who have been harmed by the people with the money. The people yeah, at the top well, of the economic spectrum. So so Dent County, Missouri, one of the counties that I write about uh, uh, and, and and also Oklahoma, South Carolina, some of the states that I really focus on a lot in the book happen to have very high rates of of opioid abuse. And so and I talk about that a little bit in the book because that's part of of, of the reality of being a poor person and living in those communities. And so. What do we do? We, we, we further punish them by creating a system that says, even if you're arrested on something that has nothing to do with your drug addiction, we're going to use your drug addiction as a way to put you in, in prison and put you in jail and make it harder for you to, to battle the various demons that you battle. And it just creates this cycle that is impossible to get out of. Yeah. What's the end game of this cycle? Is it just that these people are not seen as fully realized humans and so nobody's actually caring about what happens to them or how long they have to stay in jail or what happens to their families? Or uh, is there some sort of end game profit model that that like somebody benefits from keeping these people incarcerated because of drug addictions or poverty, et cetera? I think part of the end game is is that that not enough people in the criminal justice system have actually stepped back and taken a look at what they're doing. You know, I, I find it very interesting that in in Missouri, all of the circuit court judges and also I'll use Idaho as an example, because they had a similar situation. All of the elected circuit court judges who who operate in courthouses on the square where the real powerful people in politics are the judge, the sheriff, the presiding commissioner who sets the budget. Those are all the folks that are involved in putting these poor people in the county jail. And 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 they don't see the forest through the trees. And yet in both Missouri and Idaho, 
two very conservative states that have generally pretty conservative uh, Supreme Courts, both of their Supreme Courts ruled unanimously in cases that were very similar that you can't put poor people back in jail because they can't afford to pay their fines and fees. And so there's a disconnect there. There's, there's a group of judges at the top level that recognize this is wrong and no judges in our system should be involved in putting these poor people in jail. And yet those who are right there in the system, you're in the courthouse and you, you have people standing before you and there is something about that system in which they just don't see people standing before them as, as humans uh, in the same way that they see other people as humans. There's a woman that, that I reported on in the book named Amy Murr, who, who told me they see us as, as cattle and we're just, you know, move us through the courthouse and into the county jail. They asked taxpayers to build this new county jail and now they need to fill it. And if it's poor single moms that they got to go stick in there because they've got a drug addiction, that's what they're going to do. Mm. So, I'm going to go ahead and assume that you yourself has have have never spent time in in debtors prison. You're the Metro columnist for the St. Louis Post Dispatch. You've you've won awards for your reporting on Ferguson. We were talking earlier in the show about what brings people to issues that do not personally affect them. So I'm wondering why you decided, like when you decided to make this subject the the topic of your first book. Well, you mentioned Ferguson, and that was really sort of a start. I was the editorial page editor uh, when Michael Brown was shot and killed on August 9th in, in 2014. And I wrote a lot about the, the, the ongoing protests throughout St. Louis. And one of the underlying causes was that a lot of poor black people in North St. Louis County found themselves constantly arrested for traffic tickets um, because there's a lot of municipalities in North St. Louis County. St. Louis isn't a, a, a homogeneous uh, city. It's a, it's a city and a county and a bunch of municipalities that make up the county. And those municipalities, many of them were poor and they used their police department uh, as a fundraising tool. Uh, and, and, and so poor black people would get arrested and they would, they would end up having a court date and some of them would miss their court date and a warrant would be put out for their arrest. And then they'd get arrested again and they'd end up in jail. And a lot of it was because all of these fines and fees started adding up and they couldn't afford to pay them. And it was, it was a, a, a really unfair system. And that led, that contributed to some of the angst underlying the police brutality debate that, that we all saw playing out on our TV uh, or, or in person, in my case, uh, when Ferguson happened. So that was sort of a beginning of it. And one of the things I found out when I started reporting on this, this really egregious charge for jail that puts people in jail uh, in Missouri, a lot of the victims of that, most of the victims of that are poor white people in rural Missouri. And, and, and I really identified all of a sudden, it just struck me. It's like, wow, this is, this is affecting a lot of people. And I don't think very many people know about it. Um, and, and, and you're right. I haven't been uh, in prison. I've never spent a, a, a night in jail. But I did recognize at one point just the, you know, my own reality and comparing my reality to the people that I was writing about. I told Amy Murr, the, the woman that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, this story, because mm -hmm. she asked me that same question. She says, why are you doing this? Why are you spending so much time writing about 
those of us who are spending time in the county lockup that even even the people in our own community don't seem to care about. And I told her a story of a time when I did get arrested. I had an outstanding speeding ticket and I got pulled over for uh, expired tags. I, you know, it was just mm-hmm. one of those things that, that people forget. Um, yeah. And and because I had that outstanding speeding ticket, I got arrested. I got cuffed. I got put in the back of a police car. I got taken to the police station and fingerprinted. And I would have ended up in in jail if I was in in, in rural Missouri or rural Oklahoma or rural South Carolina. And I didn't have any money in my pocket, but I had 80 bucks in my wallet. And the cop Mm. said, hey, do you have any money in your wallet so you can just pay Mm. bail and get out of here? And I said, sure, here's 80 bucks. And I got home. And on that day, my older daughter was watching my younger kids. And I just think about if I were a poor black person in Ferguson, the devastation that could have happened to my life on that day because I forgot to pay a speeding ticket. If I were a poor rural white person in in Oklahoma, like Kendi Kilman, one of the characters in my book, I would have ended up in jail and had this debt hung over my 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 life for a decade or longer. Um, so the consequences for somebody like me, a white middle class suburbanite, uh, are 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 there's there's nothing. I don't see that part right. of the system because I can buy my way out of it, and that doesn't exist for the bulk of people caught in the misdemeanor system. About 80% of the people in in municipal and county courts are poor. And we know that because uh, when when they do the proper ability to pay test, they qualify for public defenders. the fact that we don't fund our public defender system in this country <laughs> makes their makes their circumstances even more difficult. But but that's that's one of the things that drove me to uh, to this story and to write profit and punishment is because I recognize that in my own lived experience, I haven't had to live this life. I haven't had to see this side of the criminal justice system. And, and when I saw it in the lives of of the people who shared their lives with me. I was just devastated. And I thought, you know, people need to see that this is what the courts actually look like for poor people uh, when, when, when they have minor things happen in their life that happen to all of us all the time. Uh, and we write a check and we're done with it. And we're, we're a little annoyed and we move on. Thank you so much for understanding that your experience is not everybody's experience. And then just finishing that sentence. and and doing the work to make sure that we all understand because that does not often happen. Tony Messenger, the book is Profit and Punishment. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. This was a hugely illuminating conversation. Thanks for having me this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Anytime. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening.